Throughout this series, we've been talking about what it means to be a disciple, what it means to be a follower of Jesus. What does that look like? What does that entail? And then secondly, uh, when, I, when you look at the message, they'll be broken down into two parts, two main parts. What does it mean to be a disciple? What does that look like? And then a really, a really practical uh, reason of what that looks like, how we, how we uh, live our lives as disciples. What does that look like as a disciple? So just kind of what, it, what a disciple is and then how a disciple lives. That's really the two components of this message. So there's a discrepancy between the life of a Christian uh, exampled in Scripture and what we see exampled in today's version of Christianity. Uh, but it seems like today that the body of Christ, throughout the body of Christ, it doesn't matter what denomination uh, you're a part of, what, what fellowship, what tribe you're a part of, uh, there seems to be a discrepancy between believers today, how believers live their daily lives, and how we see the, the, the believers uh, in, the, in the New Testament, in the early times of the church, how they lived their lives. I think we read about that, their faith and their dedication in the Bible, the, the early church, and we compare it to the church today, and there is a difference. There is a distinction. Uh, remember, many of these people lived in constant persecution, constant threat. They had no friends in this world. No comfort in this world, just isolated groups of people. But yet they, they live their lives in such dedication to Jesus. And it's really fascinating. We live in a world, and I understand our world is changing, but let's face it, here in our nation, we still have the freedom to worship Jesus. I mean, there's no one outside of these doors today with machine guns threatening our lives. So we live in a, a very free world, a free of persecution, uh, there is no threat that we're going to be martyred today, but yet there seems to be a difference, a distinction between the believers of Jesus in the early days of Christianity, and I would even say this, the believers of Jesus 50 years ago. Just looking back 50 years ago, how they lived their lives and how we live our lives today. I think one of the reasons for that discrepancy uh, is our understanding of salvation. I know I'm, I've I mentioned this last week, but I really want to mention it again because I think it's a vital, important truth. we got to get this into our spirit. I think one of the reasons why we have a discrepancy in the life of believers today it goes right back to, to the most important component of our, our relationship with Jesus, and that is our experience of salvation. For example, some people will read John 3, 16, and they'll conclude they're a Christian because they believe, and believing is the, really the sum total of what it means to be a Christian. Again, John 3, 16 is the example for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that what? Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Jesus did in fact say this. We see this uh, in the slide that we're looking at. Whoever believes in him, believes in Jesus, should not perish, but have everlasting life. You can't argue that. You can't argue that if you just isolate that, and that's the only verse that is pertaining to your salvation, why you are a believer, why you believe you are saved. But it's just one verse, remember that. I, I tried to do a little bit of a search. I was going to add some, some, some detail and a little bit more content to the message this morning. And I tried to say, to just do a Google search of how many verses pertain to salvation. And, and I know that could be kind of a tricky number, and I saw 150 scriptures. I saw 75 scriptures. I saw a variation. We, we, at least we understand this. 
there is more than one verse that pertains to salvation than John 3.16. So you have to look at those verses collectively, cohesively. How do they fit together? And it gives you a complete picture. Unfortunately, many people think it's okay to do this. In church, it's never okay to do this. It doesn't matter if this is in regards to salvation or anything else you're studying in God's word. Please hear me. This is a great way of people falling into error, getting all confused about things. You can't take one verse of scripture and pit it against another one. You can't say, well, this scripture is true and this scripture isn't true. Because the same Holy Spirit who inspired the writers of the Old Testament is the same Holy Spirit who inspired the writers of the New Testament. And it goes down even very detailed. The same Holy Spirit who inspired the writers of the Gospels also inspired uh, the writers of the epistles. So if you have this, if you can come to this place and you think it's okay that I can take this scripture and pit it against this scripture, what you're doing is you're saying this, the Holy Spirit is double-minded. You're saying, well, if this scripture is more important pertaining to salvation than this one, then the Holy Spirit must be confused. So that's the conclusion you have to come to. And if the Holy Spirit is double-minded and confused, we can't rely on Scripture. So don't ever make that mistake of doing so. Listen, sometimes there are verses, there are stories in the Bible you get, and they don't fit anywhere. And that's okay. And you don't have to go out and make a whole theology or a belief about them either. People are doing that with, uh, with flat earth and aliens and all kinds of junk, you know? You'd be surprised what's happening out there, but it, it does happen. So, so when we read scripture, we must understand it collectively, cohesively. Otherwise, you're destined, you're destined for error. John 3.16 is just one sentence. One sentence in a conversation that Jesus has with a man named Nicodemus. Again, here's how that conversation begins. In verse 1, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher from God. He believes in Jesus. For no one can do these things unless God is with him. And remember, this is very early in the ministry of Jesus. You know, as you look at the ministry of Jesus, he reveals himself more and more, right? I mean, even the disciples don't know who he is until certain points in their lives. They're like, okay, this guy is more than just a man. Uh, Nicodemus believes at this point already, hey, Jesus, we understand you are from God. You are sent from God. God is with you. We would classify then Nicodemus as a believer. Nicodemus believed in Jesus, believed God was with him, and that God uh, was, was helping him to do the things that he did. How does Jesus respond to Nicodemus? And I think this is where everything goes off the tracks. You must be born again. Same conversation as John three sixteen. You must be born again. So what is new birth? New birth is an experience. And I don't care what anybody tells you, there is something to experience when it comes to new birth. The more you are in depth in sin, the more that you are in this world, the more drastic that distinction will be. If you grew up in a Christian home and in a Christian environment, it may not be so drastic and distinct, but there is an experience. I mean, you should know when someone moves inside of you and changes you into a new person. So there, it is an experience, and it's an experience that was prophesied many years ago by the prophet Ezekiel. And I think it, it really gives us a great snapshot of what it means to be born again. Ezekiel 36, I will give you a new heart 
and a new spirit within you. I will take out the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will, look at this, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and will keep my judgments and do them. You know, Ezekiel prophesied about this day when the Spirit of God would take up residency within a person and give them a new heart, a new spirit. The Holy Spirit would dwell in them, enabling them to walk in God's statutes and keep his judgments. Church, that should happen for you and I when we are born again. If you just simply believe in Jesus, you come to this mental epiphany, but there isn't any change. If there isn't any transformation in your lives, you have to question the, the validity of your experience. And I know that goes counter because some of you come from different circles and different backgrounds of Christianity. There are some circles in Christianity that you shouldn't question things. So here's the question you have to look at. If I'm not walking in these statutes, I'm not, I don't have a desire to do so, maybe something didn't happen in me. And that's not, there's nothing wrong with that. I would rather you question that, come to that experience, experience that truth, than to always be doubting and concerning. Did I ever, did I ever experience new birth? We must be born again. Church, we can't follow Jesus unless we're born again. Unless we have been given a new heart, a new spirit, and unless the Holy Spirit dwells in us, we have no power to follow Jesus. Believing in Jesus doesn't equal new birth. I've heard that said before too. If you believe in Jesus, that's new birth. Even the devil believes, and he's not born again. 63% of Americans identify as Christian, but few far are born again. And that's one reason why a life of a Christian looks different than it does today from biblical times. See, in the beginning of Christianity, those who believed in Jesus followed him as Lord were called disciples. For the first 13 years of Christianity, Christians weren't called Christians, they were called disciples, or disciples of Jesus, or followers of Jesus. And I know I've mentioned this earlier in the series, we're going to bring it back again. The disciples of Jesus were first called Christians in the book of Acts, chapter 11, at Antioch. I'm just going to read the last part of the verse. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. That word Christian was given to the followers of Jesus as a derogatory epithet. We look at the origins of that word Christian. And if you look in the dictionary today, it'll give you one definition. But the origins of the word really means this. Those who belong to Christ, implying enslavement. So slaves, if you think about it in Roman times, slaves were the lowest class of people. Slaves were not considered people. They were considered property. They had no rights. And so nobody desired to be a slave. No one wanted to be a slave. Paul even says in regards to being a Christian that we, are, we have become the scum of the earth. So that's, again, showing the, the ideology behind Christianity. It wasn't one of exalting oneself. It was bringing oneself under the leadership, the lordship of Jesus Christ. You belonged to Jesus. You, he owned you, so to speak. And really to emphasize this, I want you to look at four examples here in Scripture. Four prominent followers of Jesus. Listen how they introduce themselves in their letters. Romans chapter 1. Paul writes Romans. Look at this. Romans chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, a what? A bondservant of Jesus Christ. James chapter 1, James being the brother of Jesus, the half-brother of Jesus, right? Same mama. He, don't, he wasn't conceived by the Holy Spirit, so same mama, all right? 
James chapter 1. He does say, James, the half-brother of Jesus, right? He says, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter, 2 Peter 1.1. 1, 1, Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ. I don't see if you see the trend here. Jude chapter 1, verse 1. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. The word bondservant Really, the King James and the New King James Version do a poor job at translating that word. Uh, I think the reason why it was a little bit more sanitized because the idea of slavery was just even uh, in the times of these translations, there's not something to be valued. But we lose something if we misinterpret that. The word that is used here by all four of those is the Greek word doulos. And doulos, first and foremost, means a slave. Now, I understand why they translate it servant and bondservant, but at the core of it, you are a slave. Paul, a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. See, 63% of Americans today call themselves Christians, but I'm sure 63% don't consider them slaves belonging to Jesus. Listen to what Paul writes to the, the Christians in Corinth. Again, think about this, slave being, being property, being owned. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, you are not your own, Christians. We are not our own. We were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify or honor God with your bodies. See, if you're born again, it means Jesus has redeemed you. He's repurchased you. you it means you were bought back from slavery. You were enslaved to this world. He bought you with his blood. And as a result, we belong to Jesus. Most people who believe in Jesus and call themselves Christians, they want to be redeemed from their sins. We don't, nobody wants to belong to sin, to be a slave to sin, to suffer death and judgment, but they want to retain ownership. I, I, Jesus, I want you to buy my sins, but you can't have me. See, it doesn't work that way. It, it, we don't determine the terms of salvation. Jesus determines that. It's in his word. If he buys you and he purchases you, you belong to him. Now, the good news about Jesus is this. He'll buy you, he'll repurchase you, but if you don't want to stay with him, he'll let you go on. He won't force you. See, slave will keep you, it'll keep you remaining in that place, enslaved. But when you become a slave to Jesus, he's not going to force you to stay with him. I think most Americans aren't comfortable with those terms, redemption and slavery. If they really know what redemption means, they're not comfortable with that. And they're not comfortable with the term slavery. It implies this, you, you lose your freedom. Let's face it, church, we're a nation that's still, even on the liberal side of things, it might be a skewed view, but there's this, high, high, this, this strong uh, belief in, in liber liberty, freedom. So we are Americans, red-blooded Americans. We, we believe in freedom and liberty. No one should touch my personal freedom and liberties. But the minute you come to Jesus, you lose those liberties. And it goes contrary to our, our nature. This is the epitome of American Christianity. We want to be saved and go to heaven, but we don't want to follow Jesus as our Lord. Fortunately, since people have itching ears, we have preachers who know how to scratch that itch, present a gospel that does, is short or, or leaves out that whole lordship component. Church, true freedom can't be found in this world. It can't be found in sin. It can't be found in the flesh. True freedom can only be found in Jesus Christ. 
The title of Christian was given to the early disciples because they lived their lives in submission to Jesus as Lord. Listen to the words Jesus shared with his disciples. Again, please, please read these words and think about them in the context of where I'm sharing them. I think it gives you a better picture. Matthew 16, 24, then Jesus said to his disciples, to those who follow him, if anyone desires, and I think that word desire is key, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. 63% of Americans claim to be Christian, but 63% don't have a desire to deny themselves, to take up their cross and follow Jesus. Church, I don't know that 63% of our church has that desire. And I'm just being totally honest with you. I don't know that 63% of the people who attend Holt Assembly of God truly have a desire to deny themselves, to crucify their flesh, and to follow Jesus. If 63% of us had that desire, our church would look different. Our community would look different. Our, our marriages would look different. Our families would look different. Our jobs would look different. Every facet of our lives would look different. I believe 63% of us want to be saved. I think that number is even higher. We want to be saved. We want to go to heaven. But I don't know that 63% of us are convinced that we really need to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow Jesus. Why? And I have to come back to this reason. Why? And the reason is, and I'm sorry if I sound like a broken record, we must not be born again. Or we are born again, and we've fallen down the wrong path. And that's the sad conclusion we have to come. It's a sobering conclusion. See, if we don't have that desire with us, and Jesus, anyone who desires, see, if you don't have that desire, you're not going to want to follow Jesus. You're not going to deny yourself. I don't know about you, but before I came to Jesus, I had no desire to serve Jesus. But after I came to Jesus and I experienced new birth, I had that desire to deny myself, to crucify my flesh, to follow him. I didn't change until I was born again. You know, when I realized this, I was a, a hell-deserving sinner. And that God was extending me grace, grace that I couldn't earn, grace that I didn't deserve. And he was extending that to me. How did I respond? Faith and repentance. Grace being extended to me compelled me to surrender. And when I surrendered myself to Jesus, he purchased me from my sin, and I was born again. God placed his spirit within me. The Holy Spirit changed me. He gave me a new heart and a new spirit. Because of that, I had a new desire to serve Jesus as Lord. Now, church, you could say this. Well, you're a pastor, and that's some isolated incident. That's only special for pastors. No, church, we all must be born again. And we all should have a similar experience. I'm not someone special. Every one of us must be born again, must have something similar to that experience. You must become a new creation. The Spirit of God must dwell in you. He must transform you. Does that mean you're perfect? Does that mean you're never going to sin? No. But unless you are born again, you're not going to have that desire to deny yourself, to carry your cross, to crucify yourself or your, your flesh, and to follow Jesus. Unless you are born again, you won't have that desire. 
And the early church followed Jesus faithfully. So faithfully did they follow after him. We know this, that the apostles, with the exclusion of John, all followed him in martyrdom. And not just the apostles, many believers, just everyday believers like you and I, follow Jesus into martyrdom. Do we have that same commitment today? I don't think we do. I'll be honest with you. I wish we did, but I don't think we do. Listen to what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15. I affirm by the boasting uh, in you which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. If you're born again, again, it doesn't mean you're not going to have a struggle with the flesh. In fact, the struggle is on because the flesh wants to be back into control. And that's why you're going to have to die daily. See, before you were born again, you were powerless against the flesh. I mean, you could try to do the right thing and go the right direction. But again, like that, like that bungee cord on your back just snapped you right back, brought you to where you were. But only when you're born again are you set free from that. And you are able to die daily to yourself. If you're born again, it doesn't mean you're not going to struggle because you are going to struggle with the flesh. But here's the difference. You have the power to crucify the flesh and its desires, but only you after you are born again. In order to follow Jesus, we must die daily to self, crucifying the desires of our flesh. See, when the Holy Spirit took up residency inside you, did he transform you? Did he transform you? Did you become a new creation? Did you have new desires after that took place? See, if so, then you have the power to deny yourself. But if that hasn't taken place, it's going to be impossible to do this. And then what are you going to do? You're just going to get religious. You're going to get hardened. You're going to get frustrated. And you're like, this doesn't work. Throw up your hands. Or you go looking for a new dog and pony show. <laughs> All these things begin to happen. And you end up just going into a circle. And you're like, this doesn't work. And I'm just going to, I'm not even going to go to church. I'm not going to be part of this. I'm just, going to be, I'm just going to believe in Jesus, and that's all. When we deny ourselves and choose Jesus, the Holy Spirit empowers our, our humble submission, and this will result in spiritual fruit. Now, this is where I really wanted to get to in the message, because spiritual fruit is something that takes place in disciples. If we are a disciple, a true follower of Jesus, we should have spiritual fruit. There should be evidence of that. If you're born again, People should know there's something different about you because there's spiritual fruit in your lives. Someone who's been born again, yielding themselves to the life-giving flow of the Holy Spirit should bear spiritual fruit. Look what Jesus said in Matthew 12, 33. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or else make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for a tree is known by its fruit. Sometimes I just love the illustrations Jesus shares with us because they're pretty simple, and I'm a simple guy. The tree is good the fruit is good. If the tree is bad, the fruit is bad. I don't know about you, before I came to Jesus, the tree was bad, the fruit was bad. If a person is born again, Holy Spirit dwells in them, they can produce spiritual fruit. So what is spiritual fruit? If we're born again, and the evidence of that new birth experience is spiritual fruit, what is that? What does that look like? Spiritual fruit is the nature and the character of Jesus manifest in the life of someone who is born again. What did Jesus say to John? In John or what does Jesus say in John chapter 15, verse 5? I am the vine. You are the branches, speaking of us. He who abides in me, and I in him bear much fruit. For without me you can do nothing. 
If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered. And they gather them and throw them into the fire and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. By this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit. So you will be called my disciples. A disciple of Jesus bears spiritual fruit. That doesn't mean, it doesn't matter if you're Catholic, it doesn't matter if you're Baptist, if you're Methodist, if you're Pentecostal, you're Lutheran, you're non-denominational, I don't care what you are, if you are a Christian and you are born again, you should have spiritual fruit. Spiritual fruit cannot be manufactured. Spiritual fruit isn't religion. Spiritual fruit isn't good deeds. Anybody who, who has a good day can do these things. But it's not spiritual fruit. Spiritual fruit is a result of the Holy Spirit empowering that person to be like Jesus. It means the death of fleshly habits and the establishment of godliness. See, there's a partnership that must take place between a believer and the Holy Spirit in order for spiritual fruit to grow. Just because you're born again and the Holy Spirit dwells in you doesn't mean you're automatically going to be fruitful. There, there has to be cooperation with the Holy Spirit. If, you're, if you get saved, you're born again, and you wake up the next day, you think, man, I'm just going to, I don't know how else to put it, but I'm just going to have fruit just dangling off the vine. I mean, people are just going to walk around and say, what is different about you? You are fruity. <laughs> that, that's just not going to happen, right? In order for them to see spiritual fruit, you're going to have to cooperate with the Holy Spirit. If we abide in Christ, the Holy Spirit will abide in us. The Holy Spirit won't force us to produce spiritual fruit unless we yield ourselves to him and God's word. Again, just because you're born again doesn't mean you're automatically going to see spiritual fruit. You should know there's a change, but just a change isn't enough. There must be proof, evidence that you are abiding in Christ and he in you. So what is the fruit of the Spirit? We can see that described, or spiritual fruit is the fruit of the Spirit. We see that described in, in Galatians. It's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Now, just put up the mirror to your soul and say, do I see those elements, components in my own life? And if the answer is no, there's a problem, right? And we need to address that problem. There's, there's only three options to consider for this problem. If you don't see spiritual fruit, in your life, there's only three options now. This is real easy. Number one, you aren't born again. Number two, you are born again, but you're not producing fruit. Number three, you're born again and you're producing fruit. I mean, those are the only three options. There, there might be some nuances within it, but that's the three options. You're not born again, so you're not going to produce spiritual fruit. You are born again, but you aren't producing spiritual fruit. You are born again, and you are producing spiritual fruit. So the, the most difficult one to, to tackle then really is if I'm born again and I'm not producing spiritual fruit. See, if we aren't crucifying our flesh, if we aren't denying ourselves, that life-changing power of the Holy Spirit won't enable us. It won't produce spiritual fruit. When it comes to spiritual fruit, there are seasons. Every one of us in here are in a season right now. We might be in similar seasons or completely different seasons. But make no mistake, every one of you 
are in a season. Now, please don't, don't miss the potential of your season. And I think sometimes when we think of fruit, I know that Jesus gives us some, these illustrations, and sometimes the illustrations are meant to take literal, and other times they're more metaphorical, right? They're more, they give us a picture. I'll give you an example. Uh, we think of, we, we need to develop spiritual fruit, the conditions. Shannon's not here today, because you can ask a farmer, there's never enough sun, there's never enough rain, there's never enough pest control, there's never enough work. I mean, nothing's ever perfect or right, okay, in the eyes of a farmer. But let's just picture this. We think in order to have a harvest of fruit, we have to have just the right amount of sun, just the right amount of water, just the right nutrients, just the right pest control. But, you know, the kingdom of God, we just sung about this, is opposite. Do you know, you don't actually, you're probably not going to grow spiritual fruit when everything's perfect. You're going to grow spiritual fruit when things are difficult. And you see, that might be the season you're in right now. And you might just despise your season. Just, ah, I just can't believe where I'm at. I'm stuck. And you got a great opportunity. you got a great opportunity to grow spiritually. And you may not be recognizing the purpose of your season. Just think about this. When you are tested, there can be a harvest. When you're, when you're tried, when you face temptation, when you overcome that temptation, when the devil comes against you and you resist him, when you hold strong in trials, when you go through difficulties and family situations and at your job and at school and you overcome them and you do so in a, in a manner that, okay, you may not be perfect, but you made a small step forward in that trial. Church, there's fruit in that. So we think this, every, I got to be I got to be reading my Bible every day. I got to be praying. And, you, and I'm not discounting it. We should want to do those. But if I do all these, the conditions are just right, and spiritual fruit's going to happen. And it doesn't happen. It's always that way. It might be preparing you for the season, but it's probably not producing the fruit. The fruit is going to be produced when you're tried, tested, when those things come against you. Again, again, a broken clock is right twice a day. Okay, and so the proof, the proof of spiritual fruit happens when you're tested, when you're tried. So on your jobs, how do you respond to your supervisor? How do you respond to your coworkers? How do you treat your customers at school? How do you respond to teachers, coworkers, peers? In our marriages, how do we respond to our spouses? See, when no one is around, even in our thoughts, when our private times, we're being tested. So don't get discouraged by your environment or the climate. The climate isn't always going to be just right for you to produce spiritual fruit. It's always when things are the worst. Earlier, I referenced John 15. And Jesus reveals that he is the vine, we are the branches. Did you notice in that, those, those verses that the word abide continues to pop up in that, in that great I am revelation of who Jesus is? Abide in me and I will abide in you. I looked closely at that word. Last night during prayer, I just kept reading that scripture. And that word abide, abide, just kept speaking. I was like, I need to really, I understand what it means, but I want to, what does it really mean? Truly mean, so that word abide in the Greek is meneo. It means to remain, to abide, okay? To sojourn. I instantly thought of following Jesus. 
to sojourn, to tarry, to not depart, to continue to be present, to be held, kept continually. See, Jesus invited people to follow him. He invited people to sojourn with him, to remain with him. And so I got to thinking about the word abide, and I see how many people don't understand their own fruitlessness, maybe. We may think of this word as abide as believe. And abiding and believing are not the same word. So I've seen plenty, plenty of people go to church who believe, they, but they don't abide in Jesus, and they cease to produce fruit. Again, verse 5, John 15, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. If you aren't producing fruit, I'm not saying you've fallen away. I'm not saying that you're backslidden. I'm not saying you're no longer saved. That's, that's not my place to say. However, I can tell you this. If you don't see fruit and you don't continue to see fruit, there's a problem, and God is trying to help you. He, fruit is evident. It, it's seen. It's witness. We know. We know better than anyone else when we're producing spiritual fruit and we're not. And so it's like this early warning system. It's like this. When you, when, if you do any type of gardening or anything, and if, if let's say a grapevine, if that vine is not producing, something's wrong with that vine. So what do they, they snip it off. You, you cut it back. I'm just saying this, when you have no fruit on the vine, there's a spiritual picture God has given you. There's a reason for it. Again, I don't, I don't care how much we believe, if we continue to not abide in Jesus, there's going to be evidence of that. We're going to lack fruit, and the fruit is the proof. Verse 6, if anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered. And they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. Again, is Jesus speaking to sinners? No, he's speaking to believers, those who abide in him. I mean, sinners don't abide in Christ. They're not, he's not the vine and they are the branches. Believers, Christians are the branches. So those branches that aren't receiving life, not producing fruit, are pruned. They're disconnected from the vine. And as a result of not being connected, they wither and are thrown into the fire. I cannot overemphasize the importance of spiritual fruit, church. If we aren't abiding in Christ as we should, fruitlessness is the proof. And I don't know about you, there have been times in my life when there's been a lack of fruit. I've just been fruitless, dry. Nothing's happening. And I want to look at every, everything else, every, every exterior, every environmental factor. You're, you, are, you are all to blame for my fruitlessness. Just as the same, you might look and say, the preacher's why I'm not so fruitful. The church is why I'm not fruitful. The songs are. You know, what, what, we look for all these environmental factors, and you just have to come back to the fact that the branch and the vine aren't connected. They're, it's not receiving. Something's wrong. Something's diseased. Something has taken its toll on the branch. It's not the environment's factor. It's not the factors of the environment. It's the, it's the branch and the vine. Listen to how Jesus concludes that illustration. Verse 8, by this my Father is glorified, look, that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. A disciple of Jesus has spiritual fruit. The early church, the early disciples who followed Jesus were called Christians because those who lived in the community said those people are just like their Lord. Those people are following Jesus. 
Again, this wasn't a self-imposed title given to them by themselves. It was given to them by the world. These people were called Christian, those belonging to Jesus, because their lives appeared to be same as their Lord. They abided in Christ, Christ abided in them, and it resulted in spiritual, spiritual fruit. Now, I'm just asking you to do this before I close. Look at your own life right now. Do you have spiritual fruit? And the answer might be this. I, I got a little. It's not a lot. Praise God for that. You need to cultivate, right? But if, you, if you're not seeing spiritual fruit in your life, there's a reason for it. And it really is, it's not real hard either. And we, again, we, we want to look for all the environmental factors, but you can't do that. You just got to come back to this. You know, I've, I've noticed a connection. I don't know about you, but this happens to me. When I'm not as dedicated to Jesus, my fruit is lacking. When I'm not close to him like I should be, my fruit is lacking. When I am engaging the world way much more than I should, my fruit is lacking. Church, this happens to us. These are natural trends, but if you stay there, the, the results aren't good. So I'm just I'm asking you this. If, if you're the kind of person, and I, I think most of us in here aren't here, but I'm just saying, if, if you're not born again, I'm praying that somewhere, somewhere, the light just goes off. And you realize this isn't, this isn't Christianity. This isn't what, it, and I pray you get hungry for God because then you'll find him. I'm praying the Holy Spirit will bring conviction in your life. I'm praying whatever is necessary for you to come to that conclusion that I'm not born again. I'm, I'm praying that happens because not being born again and going to church is miserable. It's absolutely miserable. But most of you, I think, are born again, but you might be lacking spiritual fruit. And again, there's a reason. And Jesus is showing you, the lack of fruit is showing you something. 